This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Enterprise. Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Captain Janeway. Captain Sisko. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. Let's make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Sailing frequencies open, sir. And we're back. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Hoffman, and I'm so happy to be back speaking with you. Um, if, as I mentioned in the last episode, we are currently, we've gone by. We are bi-weekly uh, for the next little bit because uh, for a number of reasons, uh, I'm traveling. Brian, you're traveling. Where are you right now? Um, I'm, I'm on deck 44. <laughs> We're on the Battle Bridge. When this airs, we are. Today we're in the Battle Bridge, folks. Uh, when this airs, uh, I will be away. I'll be out of the country, and Brian will be out of the, will be somewhere. I'll be in Houston. Houston, Texas. I have some, some family out there visiting, so. Yeehaw. Are you going to have a good barbecue in Houston? Oh, of course. Always do. Oh, man. You know, I've never really been to Houston. I've been to Austin, and I've been to... Um, Oh, what's the other big one? Dallas? But I've never been to Houston. I'm sure it's lovely. Um, anyhow, uh, so we're bi-weekly uh, for the next little stretch. Uh, last, Our last episode, the Gaze in Space episode, was a lot of fun. This episode, though, hold on to your hats, folks. Hold on to those 10-gallon hats, Brian. We've got uh, Michael Westmore calling in in just a moment. Those of you who don't know who Michael Westmore is, you're going to know in a minute. Michael, Michael Westmore is one of the most important people in Star Trek, one of the most innovative and key personnel in terms of the visual aspect of Star Trek, he was the lead um, makeup person uh, for for Star Trek for the next generation through J.J. Abrams through 2009. He from TNG, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies in between. He was the the guy who created the alien species look and uh, was the last guy to sign off on everything that had to do with an antenna. Or some weird makeup, or a, a snout, or anything, <laughs> anything uh, that involved an alien, a, a trill spot. He personally painted the trill spots on Terry Farrell every morning. What a job, huh? Um, and invented it all: Cardassians, Jem'Hadar, uh, Ferengi, uh, you know, Herogen, the Kazan Nistrin, Sulaban, <laughs> all of these guys. He created them and also created, a, you know, adapted the Klingons. The Klingons, of course, existed in Star Trek, the motion picture as we know them now, our first Ridge Klingons. But he then, and then the, the, the Wrath of Khan and whatnot. Um, wait, were there Klingons at Wrath of Khan? Hold on. Were there Klingons in, Wrath, in, in Search for Spock? Uh, I don't think there were. Well, maybe there was one or two floating around somewhere. But uh, anyway, the point is uh, ridged uh, Klingons were adapted into the Klingons we love today via Worf, the mighty son of Moog, in The Next Generation. So we're going to have a lengthy chat. Hopefully we'll get him for a full hour. We're going to talk about him. But here's the thing. He's got a new book out, right? We know him from Star Trek. Star Trek is just part of Michael Westmore's uh, lore. Michael Westmore has done a ton of things. Uh, he won the Oscar for the movie Mask. He did 2010, the year we uh, the year we make contact. Uh, he did Rocky, for God's sakes. He did Raging Bull. He did everything. And his family is the first family of Hollywood makeup. His like great uncle created the Creature of the Black Lagoon. 
right? I mean, she's incredible. He's incredible. <laughs> I mean, and and his and his daughter does makeup also. So it's like four generations of Westmore stuff. So that's what's happening in this week's episode, and uh, it's going to be great. Two weeks from now, we're going to have another great episode, and then pretty soon we're in the summer. We're going to have convention season. You know, we may be bi-weekly now. By the time we get to the conventions, we're going to be bi-hourly. We're going to have so many episodes. And then we got this new show called Star Trek Discovery that's coming out. So before we kick it over to our interview with Michael Westmore, I want to tell you one thing. Because you're getting so excited about this new show, you might be getting hungry. So you might be wondering, what's for dinner? The answer is BlueApron.com has the answer for you. BlueApron.com is, as you know, because you are a listener of the show... The grooviest way in which to make a home-cooked meal without having to really kill yourself by going out to the friggin' supermarket. You're going to get all of the ingredients sent directly free to you. It's like Netflix for food. Um, but uh, you do cook, right? But you get all the right ingredients and you get the exact amount. They got new recipes Every week, uh, when you sign up for Blue Apron, there are different tiers you can do it. Let's say you get the three-a-week plan for uh, for a party of two. It's you and your and your spouse. Uh, you will get the exact recipe of what you need. Uh, you'll get uh, just enough ingredients. If it calls for a little bit of rice wine vinegar, you're going to get a tiny little plastic bottle of rice wine vinegar, just enough to make that meal. And uh, my wife and I have done it, and it is uh, really a good time. Uh, you know, we had a delicious some sort of uh, salmon situation with um, scallions. And as I've mentioned before, when you go to the store and buy scallions, you buy a hundred of them because they come in a bunch when you only need one. With blueapron.com, you get just the amount you need. Featured upcoming meals include spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salata. Sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice. Oh, that's what we had. We had that. That's what, that's the, the, the one. It's really good. And also, this is healthy stuff. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not garbage. It's really good. And then some other stuff. All right, I'm not going to read it all. Go to blueapron.com slash engage. Blueapron.com slash engage. Special um, coupon through us. You'll get a special deal. The first three meals free with free shipping. Blueapron.com slash engage. Okay, enough of that. Let's now kick it over and talk to our new friend, Michael Westmore. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. And uh, this is a real treat for us today, folks. We have really one of the most uh, important people in Star Trek uh, on the phone today, uh, please welcome, with a big round of applause, Mr. Michael Westmore. Hello, Michael. How are you, sir? Good morning. How are you? I am well, and you're out there on the West Coast, and we are here on the East Coast, but thanks to the magic of subspace communication, we are speaking to one another on this podcast. <laughs> and uh, Michael has just published, literally just, just a couple of weeks ago, um, a book, a memoir, if you will, and it's called... Makeup Man, from Rocky to Star Trek: The Amazing Creations of Hollywood's Michael Westmore. And there's a lot to unpack right there in that title. And the first thing I want to jump at is for people who maybe uh, don't know they know your work, but they maybe don't know you, is that it's not just Michael Westmore; it's Hollywood's Michael Westmore, because you are in in the very specific niche that you were in of makeup and special effects makeup design uh the westmore family is uh is 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 a name with which to be reckoned you are it's, it's a family business that you're in is that a correct way of stating it it's it's actually a hundred years old this year the westmore family legacy is a hundred years old this year yeah grandfather actually grandfather opened the first studio uh, first studio makeup department in 1917. Wow, wow. And it doesn't end with you also. There are generations after that are still keeping keeping the flame. Oh, there's a fourth generation, yes. <laughs> so, you know, for, for fans who don't know, can you walk us through a little bit about some of the highlights in the careers other than yourself? And then we'll talk about you. But let's go, let's start with the grandfathers and, and then go down to the next generation real quick for people who may not realize. 
Okay. What, what's interesting is I, I literally opened the first part of my book by selecting uh, grandfather and each one of the sons in the uh, in the second generation with just just highlights. I mean, each one of them uh, could probably have a volume written on them what their careers in, entailed, because each one of them department headed a uh, a major studio, and of course grandfather being the first one, and all through his it was the silent days. Um, he he did the first the, the King of Kings and. Uh, was a wig maker to start with. Actually, going way back, you're talking about before 1900, he was a barber in England. He was uh, Winston Churchill's uh, barber. <laughs> wow, how about yeah. that? Yeah. That's and incredible. And uh, they traveled, the family traveled, and he uh, was trying to find roots somewhere between England, Canada, United States, and then wound up in Hollywood here uh, around 1916, 17. And, and opened this first studio, of which at that time there were no professional makeup artists. The actors are doing themselves, and of course nobody matched from day to day, and he convinced them uh, that there should be a responsible person. So it was literally a bunch of clowns and morticians and hairdressers uh, that got together and formed a guild then. Now, and when you say 1917, the beginning of Hollywood, Hollywood wasn't even Hollywood yet. There was still, you know, motion picture... Uh, uh, industry was still East Coast predominantly. You had you had spots in 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 Queens, New York, and Fort Lee, New Jersey, Edison Laboratory, and then starting out to Hollywood. So this is really first first level stuff we're talking about here. Yes, yes. I mean they were filming then. I know Universal Studios was in uh, uh, filming outside. They didn't even have stages. Uh, where they were, but horse barns and places like that. Um, interesting thing, which I didn't put in my book, was is that uh, my wife Marion, uh, her uh, uh, her grandfather was very close with Louis B. Mayer when they were filming back in New Jersey, New York. Oh wow! And he asked him to come to Hollywood with him because they were new thing of motion pictures. Uh, was happening and if he would like to get involved with it and he said no he didn't want to leave newfoundland so uh he stayed there and and the rest of the rest is history wow so your yeah. gran- your grandfather starts the first guild of makeup artists and and again for people who don't really know how movie making is done when you say the shots have to match uh that's because you'll do a scene where you know the beginning of the scene might be in one room and then they walk to the next room and uh, you shoot that three days later, uh, so me, things need to yeah. look, you know, need to look the same. And if the actors are doing it themselves, they're they're not trained for that sort of thing. Let me give you a bad example. Good. I when when I first started in the business, uh, Marlon Brando was doing a picture called The Ugly American, based on a uh, best-selling novel. Yeah, Graham Greene. And the character, his character in the movie, had to wear a mustache. And Marlon said, instead of dressing mustaches and just giving them, or having the makeup artist take care of them, Brando said he would do it. Just give me all the mustaches. And he would trim them and put them on. And if you're real, have a sharp eye, you can see this mustache changing, getting longer, (laughs) getting shorter, getting crooked, because Brando would stick it on himself. Uh, And so that's, as opposed to having... Phil, who was his personal makeup artist, literally be responsible to line it up wow. every day and get it in the right spot. That's why we need a guy like That's why if you look for seven seasons, Jadzia Dax's spots are always in the same place because you were there to make sure. You know what's interesting? They're in the same place, but they don't match. Oh. <laughs> well, we'll get, we'll, we'll get to Jadzia's. I hand. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to Jadzia's spots in a moment. Believe me, okay. I have a lot of questions about those. Um, so uh, you say, you know, your grandfather worked on, on King of Kings, one of the first major motion pictures of all time. Uh, what were some of the other uh, big ones that, that your family was responsible? Well, they had, um, my dad, uh, Monty Westmore, he was the oldest brother. And he went along, he was Valentino's personal makeup artist. Uh, he worked on Clara Bow. Uh, a number of the uncles did. And then uh, in the latter part of his life, he was doing three films at the same time. He was doing uh, Rebecca, uh, which was starring Ingrid Bergman in her mezzo. Or, uh, Rebecca. Rebecca won the, uh, the Oscar. Yeah, that was after Intermezzo, H- Intermezzo was Bergman. Bergman. Uh, Rebecca yeah. is, um, is Hitchcock with uh, Laurence Olivier and... Um 
Uh, yes. Vivian Lee, yes. right? No. And that was one of Hitchcock's first films. Yeah, yeah. And to top it all off, he was doing Gone with the Wind. Whoa! Uh, well, <laughs> he didn't survive. He died at 40 years old of a heart attack. Oh. Uh, I was very young. I was only two years old. But uh, just taking on so much, he's, you know, physically, and uh, he couldn't take it. Um, then Purse and Earn were the twins afterwards. Purse ran Warner Brothers. Uh, and was Betty Davis's personal makeup artist, and of course he did The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and uh, all of the films that were coming out of Warner Brothers at the time. Uh, Ern, uh, Ern actually won the first, it wasn't an Oscar, the Oscars had started in 19, about 1928, I think it was 29, but Ern got a, a cup from a major uh, movie land magazine at that time, for his work on, uh, uh, I'll have to find the name for you. Oh, no. God, what was it? One of the early Warner Brothers films. Yeah, it was a big one. It was a huge film where Purse created the old uh, grease paint uh, with, uh, he did the old age makeup with grease paint. Uh -huh. uh, didn't have appliances yet on people uh, that, were, that were successful. Uh, then there was Wally at uh, at Paramount, and Wally did uh, the uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, which oh, was man, a big yeah. film then. And he was he was personal makeup artist to Audrey Hepburn, and uh, and then there was uh, Bud at Universal, and he was involved with uh, the latter Frankenstein and Wolfman Pictures and it, Francis the Mule and well, it's it's amazing to me that you had uh, three of the major studios each had a member of your family there. It was a divide and conquer in a way. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and then I, I would imagine, though, as a kid, I mean, uh, you know, the Universal ones, you know, that's where the really cool stuff was. I mean, that was Frankenstein and the Wolfman and all that sort of thing. I and mean, that's where I apprenticed. Sure. I mean, that was the one I would choose too. I mean, come on. Um, and uh, Halloween must have been a, a real trip when you were a kid, huh? You know, it's it's almost after being involved and around this so much, and even with my children, they weren't interested in makeup. <laughs> Mackenzie was. We took her to see cats when she was very young, so she was a cat every Halloween for a number of years. But Michael, uh, Michael didn't want to wear anything. He wanted a cool costume, but uh, nothing covered his face so he could run from house to house, you know, with a bag for candy. <laughs> uh, Michelle, my middle daughter, she. Uh, she she did some crazy things. It wasn't anything in particular. She did, one year she did a thing called Space Kitty, which was a combination between a cat and an alien. And it was oh. like, oh yeah, yeah. She was a, a creative one out of the group. <laughs> so uh, yeah, they had fun. But I mean, I uh, at the studios, especially when we were doing Star Trek, that was the time we had to lock everything up about a month before Halloween started. Otherwise, you'd start to find things disappearing. Really? And, uh, oh, no. That's terrible. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> ears and noses and stuff like that. And, you know, and the thing is, people ask, I give it to them. But, sure, uh, sure. to come and find things just gone, it was... Uh, we're, yeah, we learned. We learned. We're not talking know. the actors here because the last thing they want to do on their day off is getting the makeup again. But you know, the guy who moves the cables around may want to grab something for his kid. That sort of thing. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, um, yes. Yeah, so clear. And you mentioned uh, Mackenzie. This is your daughter who is involved on the show um, on um, Face Off. Face Off, which is on which network is that again? That's on Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi, and you've been a guest on on Face Off, uh, Judge. Actually, yeah, I I was a regular for. Let's see, we're in our we're in our eleventh season now, and we have two more seasons, so there's thirteen. I became the mentor to all the kids uh, around season four. I was a guest judge up till then, but uh, after that, I literally would go in and work with each one of them for about twenty minutes talking about their mold making and how they were going to paint it and everything just just so we could kind of you know some people have different degrees of talent sure and the idea was to kind of help the uh, the lesser uh, talented ones to pick up their pace and so they they wouldn't make you know mistakes that they normally would yeah so after season four no longer guest they said all right we'll, we'll give him a, a key card we'll let him in all the time you know he's here yep. he's here enough yep. so awesome um now your career um it's right there in the title of the book, Makeup Man, from Rocky to Star Trek. I mean, there's a lot There's a lot that isn't Star Trek. 
Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that, even though this is the Star Trek podcast, because um, there's a lot of stuff that, as a, you know, as a Star Trek fan, I almost forgot. I was like, oh, my God, he did that, too. It's incredible. So um, the first one is the one you won the Oscar for. Um, um, yeah, you won the Oscar for the movie Mask, which was a big hit in the late 1980s. I don't know how well remembered it is now among young film goers. You know, it's huge. It's still huge. Okay. I'm, abs- I'm absolutely amazed because of all the films. Uh, and not only do people uh, still view it, the, the younger filmmakers, they love it. It, yeah. It's like it's uh, a very tender moment, and it's it's all true too. That's yeah. what's uh, amazing about it to the point where they even turned it into a musical at the Pasadena Playhouse. Right, I heard that, about that. Uh, every night for six weeks, and there was a standing ovation. They they were hoping to take it to Broadway, but it, there was a lot of stuff that went on as far as trying to put a production together to go to New York, and it. it it didn't survive. Yeah. Well, for people who don't know, the, the film came out in the late 1980s. It starred Cher, and she was really at the peak of her uh, of her popularity at the time. Uh, really great role where she played kind of like a tough biker chick, um, but a very tender story. She had a son who was played by Eric Stoltz, who had, I don't know the name of the disease. It had, it had a nickname was Lion's Disease. Lion's Disease. He had a, a facial deformity, basically, that... that, yep. that uh, made him look very odd and and um uh, ultimately killed him um but what i wanted to ask you is you know you walk a very fine line when you're working on star trek and you're creating neelix and 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 cardassians and one you can really go wild with your imagination with this you had something that you that you had images of that you could work from and you you also um you know, uh, you know, you want to make it realistic, but you don't want to make it so shocking that people can't relate to the character. So I would imagine this is one that you, you know, really struggled with while you were creating uh, this look. Well, actually, I had the real boys. I had pictures of them. Yeah. To to work from. I mean, it, what you know, when when you're uh, creating something like that, though, I mean, you you just wanted to go direct. You wanted to make it as much of a copy as possible or or was it something where yes, you could, yes, felt you could fact, tweak I had to, the, the first thing we did after I got through uh, talking with Peter Bogdanovich was to make a sculpture of the boy the real boy's head to actually make it to be able to look at it and say okay this is what we have to achieve here's a third dimensional uh, head of him and so then it was up to them to try to find me uh, an actor that we could transpose this makeup onto, and of course, uh, Eric Stoltz was wasn't the most ideal to have to work with because his eyes were so close together. Uh, the real boy's eyes were literally three and a half inches apart. What happens in the disease is the calcium in the body uh, migrates to the head, and the skull starts to grow, and uh, of course, leaving a lot of space in there for the brain to to wobble around in um so with eric the the most i was able to put uh an area between his eyes was an inch and three quarters without literally blocking his vision so much he couldn't see Mm. but uh so it's it's half of what the real boys look like but even when we did the play they would uh, show pictures on the screen uh, the musical um, of inter- going back and forth between the real boy and Eric's makeup, and nobody ever said oh, they don't look anything alike. It was mm. like it was amazing. I'm sitting there going, "Oh my god!" And then no comments on it. So <laughs> it's just that the rest of it seemed to to work very well. Yeah, and, I, uh, I I guess it nudges you into a into a uh, suspension of disbelief enough, and you don't even know it's like an optical illusion almost. You don't even you exactly don't even exactly. Yeah. And and of course, in, in the musical, followed along with the same. The the mother was a biker chick. They belonged to a motorcycle gang. Uh, yet Rocky himself, the boy, was an A student. Yeah. And Stanford had given him a um, a, a full full scholarship, but he passed away at 16 years old. But he, he lived longer than than and most any of the other children that uh, contacted this disease. So. It was no, nobody knew how long he was going to last. Maybe longer, you know. Yeah. And uh, and he didn't though. It's just he literally died in his sleep. It was uh, uh, a, you know a devastating disease that 
literally just basically attacked the head, and I was offered for research. I was offered his skull. His oh mother God. gave his head to Stanford, the medical department, um, and they want to know if they wanted to send it. I'm going. No, I don't. I don't need his head. You know, somebody else might have wanted to do that, but uh, I had such great pictures. Yeah. that the mother had given to the studio. Wow, that's incredible. Well, one of the things I remember about that movie is that, you know, you're fascinated by this illness, but it's actually, it's a really interesting look at biker subculture because you think of them as being all, like, kind of tough and, and almost, like, and always rowdy and ready for a fight, but, you know, uh, when it came to the caring for this kid, I mean, everybody really loved him, and it was actually a very tender story, and, and that was... Uh, you know, it was a very unique movie and uh, deservedly won the Academy Award for you. And then another one that I loved from around the same time, which I didn't realize that you did, uh, was the Steve Martin movie Roxanne, mm-hmm. where you had to put the schnoz on this guy. Now, the thing about Roxanne, which was a, which was a, sp- a modern spin, late 80s, early 90s, on Cyrano de Bergerac, and, you know, uh, Steve Martin has to have a gigantic honker of a nose. And it's got to be so big that you can't not notice it, but not so big that it doesn't look like it could exist in the real world. So my it's question, almost, my, yeah, my, 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 big, my big question for you is like, how much tweaking did it take to get the length of the nose exactly right? I made a nose, I, it was a quarter inch longer, a half inch longer, three quarters of an inch longer, an inch longer, an inch and a quarter, and we tested all those on one day. And that was the idea, it was to, straight on, when you when you saw him straight on, it didn't really, it wasn't a big, wide, bulbous nose, it, it, it tapered, so it really wasn't noticeable. But as soon as he turned sideways, <laughs> I, you know, I think the one we used was three quarters of an inch longer than his own nose, but... If for some reason, illusion-wise, it just seemed longer. And, of course, this was what was interesting with, with my career. Star Trek was a whole career in itself, but I had this other whole career prior to Star Trek where I was, you know, traveling around the world with uh, Stallone and De Niro and, and Liza. And, um, it was like when Star Trek came up, and you know, am I going to stop? But, um, but working with Steve and things like that, it was... Uh, uh, it was interesting. It was fun because you get to meet all these personalities, and that's what actually came up and I put into my book was all these all these people that I met, uh, and when it, uh, including Star Trek, it runs into thousands. Oh yeah, well yeah. I mean, so many colorful characters. I mean, um, uh, I mean that, that's the thing. You get a guy like um, Steve Martin, and he's in the makeup chair every morning. He's a professional, sure, and, and he wants comes to work, but he's a really funny guy. I mean, it, it, it's it's probably a lot of laughs in the makeup chair. Uh, with a, with you know, a, <laughs> a lot of the comedians aren't funny. Oh, no. <laughs> no, they aren't. They aren't. Uh, Jonathan Winters was. Jonathan Winters, and uh, there's a, a few of them that are on all the time. But see, Steve Martin, even though he was basically stand-up comic, he was also a writer. Yeah. And he wasn't a person uh, that wasn't that wasn't you know on all the time. He could stop and carry on an intelligent conversation yeah. without having to make a joke. Uh, Robin Williams is another one that was on all the time. I mean, he would literally have crowds around him that were dying laughing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve wasn't. He was more. He was more of the serious type person that you actually saw in the film. Um, yeah, I, I must have watched that movie a hundred times, Roxanne. I, I really dug that one. So uh, before we get into Star Trek, though, it's in the title of your book, Rocky. And you mentioned a moment ago, Robert De Niro, you were the makeup designer uh, on the two greatest boxing movies of all time, Rocky and Raging Bull. Uh, Rocky 676 and Raging Bull 1980. Um, I'm just kind of curious, uh, compare and contrast, what, are, what differences were there between the two on, you know, you got to make a boxer look like he's getting the tar beaten out of him. Uh, what were some of the different techniques used on Rocky versus Raging Bull? Well, you know, on, on Rocky, it was more of a kind of a tender story uh, with with his climb to the uh, getting the chance to, to fight Apollo Creed. And then most of our, our, our I say, boxing damage was done uh, at the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, as as opposed to Raging Bull, we actually, as the film progressed, he had different fights. 
that we would film, and there was different different damage that happened. In fact, um, on uh, to begin with, on Rocky, Stallone uh, had uh, this is this is the beginning of of him. Uh, he lived in a little apartment with his wife and his big dog Butkus in a little apartment in Hollywood. And he actually had a mattress on the floor, and we sat on that mattress, the two of us, watching Super 8 films of boxing matches. Wow. Uh, then he took me to my one and only fight, of which we <laughs> sat close enough where I got some blood splattered on oh me. Oh, my God. And, uh, I don't need this anymore. Okay, I, I can, <laughs> you know, I'll get my research right. uh, somewhere else. Uh, but Raging Bull, there was all these different fights that went on and that, that really happened. So I tried to, you know, duplicate these things as close as possible when we were actually filming them. And we spent an entire month over at Culver City Studios doing just the fights. Every day or every so many days, we would do another fight, and I would have to have the makeup ready for it, whatever uh, torture the mayhem the the other actor had to do. Uh, and De Niro is... He gets into it. Uh, Stallone, he, Sly got into it too, uh, and it was he and Carl took some pretty good punches by by accident with each other. But De Niro actually, in his in his thinking, he wasn't really thinking actor. Uh, the the cornermen and some of the professional uh, people that we had around us as technical advisors said that De Niro was in such good shape because he brought his weight down to like 155. Said that he could probably have gone and fought some amateur bouts wow. and won. Yeah. And won. That he was that he had he had learned so well. And you you see that in all of his early pictures that he did when he had to, when he learned had to learn to play the saxophone for New York, New York. He actually learned how to play the saxophone. So wow. when you're watching the movie, he's pushing the right notes. He had uh, Georgie Ald was there, and Georgie Ald was one of the top saxophone players in the world. Uh, and, he, and he was De Niro's technical advisor there. So De Niro would just become the character because I, I saw him a couple times and somebody would walk up to him uh, after he had finished the film and said you know hey uh, you know Mr. De Niro tell me about how you did this or did that and he'd go I, I, I don't want to talk about it it's gone mm, yeah. he would literally when the movie was over that character he gave it up and would become another character. Well, so when you were um, filming something as heavy as Raging Bull in those you know marathon fight sessions, when he's in character and it's a very physical thing and his adrenaline's up, and then uh, you know he's got to get back in your chair and you've got to damage his nose a little bit more for the next take. Right. You know, it's a it's a one on one thing, and you don't want to mess up his his headspace because he's really in it was it ever like intimidating like oh my god there's this guy who's ready to tear, tear somebody's head off to, and now I gotta get in his nose and move it around a little bit no you know the thing is, he, he, at those times uh, and the same thing happened with uh, with Jane Alexander um, when she was doing uh, Eleanor Roosevelt they kind of like zone out I mm. tell you a big zone out one was Cure Delay in 2001 uh, that was uh, or 2010. He he literally for five and a half hours. He he did a lot of meditation, mm. and he would literally his eyes would be open. He'd be sitting there, but he wasn't there. Wow! And that's why with with uh, Jane was that way too. Uh, and a lot of them would would get uh, inspiration. Like Jane would listen to. Um, tapes mm. of Eleanor Franklin, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, speaking mm. at some some event or something. So when she got up out of the chair, she was Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. Stallone listened to it. A, a, took twenty minutes to do his movie for Rocky, <laughs> uh, putting on his eyelids, and uh, of course the fight makeup that took later. But I mean, through most of the film, yeah, he had these little plastic eyelids on that uh, had little cuts and scars in them. And he would listen to this motivational tape. And both of us, boy, as soon as the makeup was over, the tape went off, the two of us were ready to jump up. And, and uh, in fact, we did it our first day in Philadelphia, where we came out of that trailer. It was like 
you could hear the Rocky theme <laughs> almost playing in your head wow, uh, when cool. we hit the streets. You you followed uh, Stallone for a while after that. He brought you back for Rocky Two, and you did um, the soccer movie he did with John Huston, Victory, and and other yeah. other stuff. So you were you were his guy for a while. You, you I for eight years. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, and then you get the call from Paramount. Yes, we're bringing back Star Trek. We want the guy. We want Michael Westmore. And initially, you said. Well, it, it was funny the way it turned out. Uh, they had started interviewing makeup artists for quite a while. And finally, it was on, uh, on like a Wednesday that uh, David Livingston, who was a production manager, called me and he said, you know, we've been interviewing people for Star Trek for quite a while, makeup artists, and we kept asking them who they would use to do the special effects for them. And your name kept coming up. Uh, of of which nobody had ever called me to ask me if uh, it was just just a question that was put to them. So David said, "Well, you know, we decided just to call you since everybody said that they're going to go to you. We're going to ask you if you're interested." And I had been doing a lot of features. I hadn't been doing much TV at that point, um, although I've got quite a few Emmys for and certificates because I I love doing TV also. But anyway, the um, uh, just, uh, I went in for an interview with Roddenberry on on the next day, and I was supposedly now I had to go see Whoopi Goldberg, which is interesting because Whoopi was in the in Next Generation. Sure, sure. She was doing a a one woman show called Mom's Mabley, which was a a black comedian that didn't have any teeth uh, for real, and uh, I had made Whoopi some gums that would slip over her own teeth. <laughs> awesome. So I said to him, I said, I, uh, I'm going to be home late in the afternoon. I've got a appointment with Whoopi, and so if you're interested, give me a call. By the time I got home, there was a message on my phone that said, you know, if you want the job, it's yours. And I called him back and said, well, you know, I want to think about it, whether I want to tie myself up on, uh, here when I've got been traveling around the world. Marion and I talked, and I said, well, you know, it's only going to last a year or so, and I can stay home and watch uh, the kids grow up, which I was always on the road when my two older ones were uh, growing up. And we agreed to it. Well, it goes for 18 years. <laughs> I get to really see Mackenzie grow up. Right, you know? right, right. Um, and and what, they, what they told me was, when I said I wanted to think about it, was they said, well, we're going to start doing tests on data on Monday, so you're going to have to make up your mind quick. Otherwise, they you know have to hire somebody else. Oh, wow. So I said, fine, let's do it. And uh, showed up on Monday, and we started doing uh, makeup tests with Brent. Wow. And then 18 years you stuck with it. It's incredible. Well, and then we <clears> keep going, another series, another series. Right. And and I had to put together all the traveling exhibits that went around the world. Uh, and they were doing CD-ROMs, and they were doing games, and they were doing uh, conventions. So I was literally involved in, in everything Star Trek. Uh, for those 18 years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really incredible. I mean, uh, you know, we think of these alien races and their storylines and, and, and sort of their um, characteristics are, are created by writers. But the look, I mean, when you go to a convention, you see, you look around and you look at all the faces. Th those are your creations. I mean, they're the, the visual aspect really i mean i know it's a uh, collaboration between props and wardrobes and there's producers that get involved but at the end of the day a cardassian looks like a cardassian because you decided that's the way they look i mean yeah let's uh and that one specifically has a funny um origin doesn't it i mean the the, the fact that we call them spoonheads is no uh is no coincidence right no it isn't it's uh, the uh, mary and i were going to dinner at this little thai restaurant in studio city california and there was a an art gallery next to it and in the window of the art gallery was this giant painting of a woman's face and she had a spoon in the middle of her forehead and uh, I said to Mary and I said you know someday this is, we might have been just just starting on next gen then and I said someday I'm going to use that for one of the aliens and of course Mark Alimo and the Cardassian makeup worked out absolutely perfect because <laughs> Mark had this long thin uh, face and uh, this the long neck uh, if Mark had had a shorter neck, I may never have put shoulders on him. But the neck was so long, his neck so long, that I said, "Gosh, this is crying out for something different." Yeah, you know that we can add. Now, I, I wished I had done more shoulders and things like that over the years, but that adds—it just all adds time to makeup. And we were always, 
you know, under the gun to have things ready on the set by 7 o'clock in the morning. Right, right. So most makeups had to be designed to be completed in three hours. That includes getting dressed. Well, I mean, these were these obstructions are what oftentimes lead to great art. You know, if you if you had total openness of budget and time, who knows what would happen? But because you had you know you had very specific deadlines to meet, and you had a a television budget that was you know bigger than much a lot of other budgets, but still not not the budget you would have on say two thousand and ten. Uh, you know, you. Uh, you had to create uh, what you got. And, and it's amazing to think of all the different looks. I mean, between something like, uh, you know, the, the Hadar, which sort of looked like these sort of humanoid triceratops guys. To Actually, I use a rhinoceros to go with it. Rhinoceros, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and the triceratops, both of them. It was a combination of the two. Awesome, awesome. And then the other thing which is neat, um, which I, I didn't really think about until this morning uh, when I was coming in here, was uh, you were responsible for modernizing a handful of pre-existing species for the new series, uh, specifically on Enterprise, um, mm-hmm. updating the Andorians, updating the Orions as well. Now, I would mm-hmm. imagine that you were, as a kid, a Star Trek fan. I mean, that, that's a question that I should have led with, I would imagine. But when you were young... You probably dug it, and this was a blast to go back and, and sort of remake, re- reboot, if you will, some of these classic looks. Well, actually, when the, when the original was airing, uh, Marion was pregnant with our first child, and it aired on Thursday night. So we weren't going anywhere. Every Thursday night became, let's sit down and watch Star Trek. Awesome. And my aunt was the hairdresser on it. Whoa! Pat. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, yeah, no, it, uh, it, Manny Cotto, who was basically kind of taking over because Rick Berman and Brandon were busy uh, working on scripts, that the two of us had talked about, you know, had had it continued because we had the plug pulled three years too soon. Uh, we talked about reprising more of the of the old aliens because it was a lot of fun doing that especially with the orions i mean i i pushed those things to with a between the hooks and the skin and the, the avocado makeup and everything it was just it was it's it was fun doing that um the pig people because you know in the original group they yeah. They the couldn't tel- see. You're they referring were, to the tellerites i believe the tellerites, the tellerites. Yeah. they were wearing halloween masks yeah. and they really couldn't see well so I redesigned those so they, they could at least see. Uh, had Couldn't put big mittens on them like the original ones had, big giant rubber gloves. So designed their hands so they could, had a dew claw on the back of the hand and a little kind of a hoof on the end of the thumb. But at least with their fingers, they could, they could push the console buttons and, and do things. And it was, and, and the Andorians, because they told me with the Andorians that if I can't make the antenna work and look real, uh, we weren't going to do them. So the, that was all done with a, uh, uh, servos that were mounted in their back underneath their clothes. Mm. And uh, a makeup artist would be off camera with uh, uh, the little controllers you control airplanes, little model airplanes with. And the director would just kind of direct which direction he wanted the antennas to go. And it was always timed out with the the movement and the actor like all of a sudden the antenna might move before the actor would turn his head it's like all of a sudden he hears something and then he turns that direction and jeffrey combs was brilliant with his timing on it well yeah that's what i was gonna say i I, you know you know it's uh, the suspension of disbelief is so high i just assumed that somehow jeffrey combs specifically had a way of moving those things but i guess the the technician would just be watching him and when he would move his eyebrows a certain way or have a certain Emotional response, that's when he would tweak the... Usually the, the director would do it. Oh, I see. He, he, like with the finger. It was the yeah. same thing I, when I did Masters of the Universe with Gwildor, the little little elf character with his, his ears. My son controlled those. Oh, my God. Uh, the director, would Gary Goddard, would just, and the same way with Star Trek, just like with a finger up in the air, you know, and point to where which direction he wanted him to go in. Oh, awesome. That's incredible. Um, so, a couple of questions. When, you, when you're doing the week-to-week, when you had, uh, you know, at the apex, when you had multiple shows going, 
Was there one, um, a lot of times there would be uh, a new species that would be introduced once and that was it. It would never come back again. Was there one where it was like, oh, this one is so good. I wish we could have him come back again. I just love the way it looks. It just feels so right. But due to story, just it was a one and done. Um, you know, there, there was two of them. They've actually, they go back to next gen. Nehemiah Persoff, I thought they would bring his makeup back. Uh, he had a ring that r- went all the way around his head and went up his nose. <laughs> and he really enjoyed it. Now, he, he's an actor that goes back to the 40s. Mm. And uh, just uh, always played, seemed like a, a a grumpy type of person. In fact, when I first met him, uh, I had a lab on stage 10. The far end of the stage opened up, and I saw him come in, and he's kind of hunched over and a scowl on his face. And I'm thinking, oh, crap, I've got to tell him he's going to wear an appliance makeup. <laughs> and the more I told him what I wanted to do to him, his eyes kept getting bigger, and he, he finally said, my grandson's going to love this. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and he did such a beautiful job. The most, I think it was in an episode called The Most Toys. Yeah. Um, it, it just, you know, uh, I thought, well, I better save this makeup because they're probably going to bring him back. Never did. Oh. Uh, <laughs> my other one was uh, Leonard Crowfoot that played, he looked like a little gold Oscar statue. And uh, he, he, he was a, a kind of like a robot that got to select becoming some other entity, alien, which would still be robotic. He happened to select a human girl, you know, woman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hallie uh, Todd played the the Mm -hmm. woman. Yeah, this is is, um, Data's daughter. Yeah, Data's yeah. daughter. So this yeah. was the first, uh, the first act of that episode before uh, the robot became the, the Lal, the daughter. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But Leonard, this this makeup, he, I, I want to say, ninety nine percent of the actors, if they were told what they had to go through, would say no, uh, and mainly because it took a real athlete. He was a ballet ballet dancer mm. and a fantastic one. He had muscles on top of muscles that you didn't recognize. So he had total control of his body. But the rubber head that he had to have on had no ears to it. Uh, It had no nostrils. The mouth was down around his chin. And he had to wear uh, these gold-plated contact lenses that were done back at Nassau. And then we had a rubber chest on him, so it would take away the look of the total human contour and an appliance that was basically like bicycle pants. They blended off around mid-thigh and just over his navel. So he couldn't go to the bathroom either. Literally all his senses were cut off. And then his entire body, we had this gold bronze paint that we painted his whole body with that it took two hours to clean him up at night. Just wow. to get him out of it. it took took about three hours to put him in. Two hours to take him out. And he was only in a few scenes, but I'm sure it took a long time to shoot. So uh, it was. It did. It yeah. did. It. Uh, but what we would do is he would he would shoot one day and then be off a day and then shoot another day uh, because his day was so long yeah. and what he was doing. But I'm I'm even surprised the studio let me do it that they didn't put clothes on him somewhere or something. <laughs> you know. To, uh, so now let me now, now let me ask you the reverse. I mean, even even a great like yourself, you can't knock it out of the park time and again. You're making so many creations. You got it's on such a fast schedule. You've got so many episodes uh, per season. Was there one time where you did something uh, for for a new species that week, and at the end of the week, you're like, "Thank God, we never have to do this one again." This one was a nightmare. Not only did I think that, <laughs> I refused to watch the episode. <laughs> If it comes on, I will not watch it. Oh no! Which one? Well, it's a, it's again, it's a, a next generation one. Yeah. After after we got next generation out of the way, I, I, I had control the whole time, anyways. But um, it with this, I had no control on it because the actress came in, and she had an alien hairdo, and uh, she had antenna that grew out of her forehead and weaved up into her her hair her alien hairstyle. 
Uh, she also had, uh, I kind of flattened out the front of her face a little bit. And then, of course, we always, after we finished with the makeup, we would take them up to, uh, at this time, it was Gene Roddenberry to look at. And I would say, you could talk Gene into anything almost. Mm. And she, she felt very uncomfortable in this makeup. She didn't like the antenna coming out of her forehead. So Gene told me, he said, okay, take the antenna off and, and change the hairstyle a bit. So the hairstyle came down, looked more like an Annette Funicello uh, hairstyle. And so what she looked like on camera was a woman that had been in a bad accident <laughs> and her face, front of her face was crushed in. But there was nothing there to say alien by taking those wait, antenna wait, off. Do you know the name of this episode? Do you remember? Is it so blank from your memory you don't want to discuss it? I know. I don't <laughs> remember it. All right. Um, and it you know, was, one, of the, uh, one of the listeners she, will know. I, I'm blanking myself, but one of the listeners will definitely know which one it is and, and send photos oh, yeah. our way. You know, as as All I have to do at a convention is, is like, like telling the story I told right yeah. now, and I would have so many shout-outs from the audience. Yeah, and, no, I always uh, say in the real world, uh, I'm considered a, uh, a Star Trek. Uh, I, I know everything in the real world. When I go to a convention, I'm an intermediate at best. You have to say half of a sentence fragment and they know exactly which one you're talking yeah, about at a convention. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, they eventually, even uh, after they got, got along into filming it, and I'm going, I don't know how in the heck they're going to explain this. They explained it by she did have an accident. Oh, there's yeah. there's a line that was written into the script about uh, some problem she had along the way. Um, let's see which one do data's. Um, it, it's actually it's the episode I believe where where we had the little person and they attempted suicide and they wrote them out of the script and they had to bring another actor in right away hmm. it had to do with stealing data oh. he was going around the world oh, stealing okay all right oh you're talking about um that's that's um the one that you mentioned earlier the most toys it could be in most toys. yeah 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 okay well you know um you know, so there, there. You know, it's, filmmaking is compromise, right? So there's, there's your department, and you're doing your work, and then props is doing their work, and wardrobe is doing their work, and to make a new alien species, it's a blending of the three. Um, were there times where you know the brilliant wardrobe department creates something, and then when you come with your makeup and you put the two together, and you're like, uh oh, this just does not work together. We have to figure out something. How we're going to change something and we have an hour to do it actually bob blackman and i worked very close together um if he designed a costume he would come to me right away and say this is what i'm going to do or if i designed uh, an alien where i wanted some neck to show or something and i said this is what i'd like to do bob and i would go to him right away so we never wound up on the set having to make adjustments mm. Be you know like all of a sudden only their hands are made up but there's got they're wearing a T-shirt, right? And, right, right. Uh, yeah, no, we, we especially with the Cardassians and things. Having to, Kathy Crosby had to have uh, her neckline lowered quite a bit and needed a scaly chest. But Bob gave me a heads up uh, a couple days before I was going to work, so I literally could could make those adjustments in a day. Uh, I had really good people with me. Awesome, and, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. So it, uh, no, we coordinate. As far as the props went, it really didn't matter. Because um, that's something they would just basically kind of put in their hands or strap on their back or something. Yeah. But no, Bob and I, to this day, we're still still good friends because we had to work so close together through those. Uh, Bob came in about the third season and was there the rest of the time. Who was the biggest? Um, the oh, I think uh, we just we just got a photo of uh, the alien you're talking about. We're talking about uh, Varia is the one who had the face that you just were not digging, right? Uh, could be <laughs> okay. Um, well, anyhow, who who? So let's talk about some of our beloved Star Trek actors, many of whom have been guests on the show, all of whom we we care for deeply. Who was the biggest monster in the chair? Who whined the most? Who wiggled the most? Who was the one who screwed up the makeup the most by rubbing their nose? Who was the one that got the most demerits uh, when you have to put it all together? 
you know, I, with, with Star Trek, I'd really, we, I would talk with them, whether they're going to be wearing teeth or uh, a lot of rubber. And, and most of them, I, I wouldn't say all of them were really good. I had one handsome young actor uh, somewhere in Next Generation it was when he came in and heard that he had to wear some rubber appliances. He says, I'm not going to do that. And I said, well, you better go talk to casting then because this is what this calls for. Mm. And he went to casting, he disappeared, and uh, uh, somebody else took you know, took his place. That happened only once. The only other time we would have problems if somebody came in and they had claustrophobia. Ah, uh, yeah. And they couldn't do it. But that was their decision to leave. And uh, otherwise, everything worked pretty good. I, I'd say the biggest problems we had is if we had some extras in uh, in makeup and they decided to have spaghetti for lunch. But mm. uh, <laughs> aside from that, and we had one actor throw up in his makeup. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we only had... Uh, 11 Borgs instead of 12. Right, so, right. Um, it must have been a trip when you had actors who wouldn't normally wear special effects makeup that for a specific episode had to. Like, you know, Jonathan Frakes once, I think there's one or two episodes where he has some, he's in disguise. And, you know, when, when, when uh, Picard became Locutus, you know, that was a big deal. That must have been sort of a special day. Like, hey, look at this. Now you get to see what it's like, what Michael Dorn has to go through and, and all that. You know, they loved it, especially Patrick. Pat, his, Patrick's time would even take longer to get him into makeup because he loved to sit and look in the mirror close up and everything and, <laughs> and even make suggestions. What if you put a little sh- shading right here or something? Uh, because he had such a stage background, yeah. he loved to get involved. Every time he had to go into a makeup, like inner light when he became the old age makeup, sure, sure, yeah. uh, he loved it. You know, I tell you, the one who really didn't like it was Marina. <laughs> Gates, Gates, Gates never had to go through it. Not once. But, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I heard Mr. Westmore, I hate you, uh, <laughs> when she had to turn into a frog in uh, in an episode where they all started transforming. Oh, the um, the the, uh, the de-evolution episode. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, and also, uh, and you made her into a Vulcan, uh, not a Vulcan, a um, a Romulan in one episode. She didn't mind that. Oh, okay. Didn't mind that, but she didn't like being a frog, and she also had an old age makeup in in one episode. Yeah, and it's like with with women, they almost they hate to see what they're going to look like <laughs> down down the pike. So uh, it, it was. Uh, you know, you we're, mean, we're we're still good friends, and I'll be seeing her pretty soon in sure. Vegas with the convention. Um, you know, you mentioned that episode, the de-evolution episode. I'm blanking on the title, but it's one of my favorites, and that's the one where Worf. Uh, when his de-evolution state is just like this, I don't even know how you describe it. It's just this giant blob of a horror show. That's yeah. one of the creepiest things I've ever seen on Star Trek was that one. That must have been a fun a fun. Film and then Barkley turns into the spider. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. God. No, that was a, Thank God. I mean, that show would have been impossible to do except the timing that we did it. It was done right after the Christmas break. So I had that entire week to do the sculpting and uh, get get that all prepared because it literally took days, more days than than normal to to get that all ready. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, also, you worked on the feature films as well. So, yes. um, I'm wondering, um, was that was that? I mean, on a very tactile level, you probably had more money to spend on the feature films than you did on you know, usual episode work. Did that affect your style at all or? No, no. In fact, it's interesting. The, uh, Rick Berman told me, he says, now the first time we started to do one of the features, he says, you're probably going to want to get rid of all your TV people and bring in feature makeup artists. I'm going, you got to be kidding. You know, our work here, in fact, to this day, they're starting to blow these things up, and and I've seen them in theaters and things. And the makeup yeah. works just as well. I said we've got the greatest team going here now, so they never said anything again. I, we uh, I would take my television uh, crew with me awesome. whenever we did a feature. But it would involve more work because um, you know what was shown on you know uh, standard def broadcast would be different than projected on thirty five millimeter. Did did it take more time to put? to put the Dorn Wharf makeup on or was it the same? No. 
No. It was the same same technique. It was the same. I mean, to be able to put it on uh, well, so you didn't see any seams or lines or color changes or whatever. No, at all. Uh, I tell you, with Worf's makeup though, what it did get down to uh, in the beginning, Michael's makeup took about three hours. We got it down to two. And then for when he finally was working on DS9, we couldn't do this on the feature, but on DS9, we would pre-paint and pre-glue everything. Mm. And it was a matter then of just snapping on his forehead and his nose, and uh, the edges on the, the pieces were very good. And then just filling in with the makeup uh, anywhere where there wasn't a, a pre-made-up piece of rubber. You know, the, the, uh, at the end of the day, when you do the math... No one on this earth, no one in this galaxy, has sat in a in a Westmore chair more for more longer amount of time than than Michael Dorn. I would imagine because of the seven seasons of TNG, the four features, and then four seasons of DS Nine. Yeah, that you are comrades in arms, the two yeah, of you. Even <laughs> you must have a special relationship with Michael Dorn. Yeah, and with Brent Spiner, and actually, and Patrick Stewart, because I had Pat, Patrick wrote the preface for my book. And uh, it, it, when I approached him to do it, it was like, uh, Patrick, would you... Uh, and I said, sure, Michael, great, you know. Oh, awesome. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it didn't even blink. And and, and I have some writings in there, too, from quotes from Stallone, uh, because with all the time that we were together, you know. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, we're just touching the surface on all these stories. I'm sure that, you know, people who are listening will want to check out that book and it's it's available now in stores and it's stream you know on the amazon and all that stuff if you want to read mm-hmm. it on your on your nook or whatever you read it on your kindle um one one last uh, specific guy i gotta ask you about and then we gotta go because i think at the end of the day the character from star trek that i think is in my opinion the most creative is the one uh, from makeup point of view is not the flashiest um, you know, certainly characters like the Jem Hadar and the um, the Kazon and all those you know sort of very flashy ones really jump out at you. Um, but it's Odo because he's got to be a non entity, right? You got to bl- it's a it's a blanketing him out, it's a smoothing him out. And at first, it's almost like uh, oh, it must be simple. They just kind of make him. They kind of just erase his face a little bit. How difficult could that be? But I imagine that that was probably a very long trial and error to get to get uh, Odo to look right. Well, that's what I thought, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, it started off with, uh, basically, he's bringing in, and we say, well, okay, we're going to make him look a little smooth. So it started off by making, uh, like, a, a forehead and a, and a little piece of chin or something. But there was so much skin texture in between, that didn't work. So then we added cheeks to it, and that didn't work. They're still in between. Uh, he had a lot of pore structure that ruined the illusion of being that smooth. The whole time I was trying to avoid a whole face, mm. and you couldn't avoid it. That's why the shapeshifters finally became a full, very, very thin mask that would literally do away with all the pore structure and to do away with uh, a lot of the intricacies of the ear where the ear was very, very simple and filled out. Uh, Hand-wise, we didn't have to worry about it. But uh, face-wise, and and we raised the hairline too to give the face a a longer, smoother look. And Renee actually enjoyed the makeup. Uh, he was uh, he was a, a total professional. He'd come in, sit down in the chair, and and that's that was a makeup where you really couldn't talk and, and chatter. Yeah, because it was so delicate to apply. Um, when are you going to air this? Uh, when are we going to air this episode? Yeah, uh, in a, in a couple of weeks actually. Okay, I've had an exhibit in Santa a Star Trek exhibit in Santa Barbara since September. Um, it's still there, but it's going to be there until. April 30th, if you happen to go on the air before that. Uh, we will go on the air before April 30th, and we'll definitely mention that in the intro. It's in Santa Barbara? Yeah, it's at the the uh, museum at the University of California, Santa Barbara. 
Okay, I will definitely and, mention that in the intro. Um, okay, and uh, I, you know, and there's also the exhibit that's happening. Um, you know, there's always Star Trek exhibits happening. There's one in Calgary right now. I mean, where there's Klingons running around. Others, but you're not specifically involved in that one, right? No. Okay. Cool. No, this is this is all of the things when I left the studio and I just walked off with all these boxes of things and I didn't know what to do with them because they were going to be thrown away. And I had them in storage for a long time. And then uh, I, I graduated from Santa Barbara, so we've been talking about doing this for years and finally did. There's uh, this whole exhibit there. It's called Life Forms uh, by Michael Westmore. It was, um, but the, the 90% of it, is all Star Trek. We actually built a new Borg suit for it. Oh, wow. Uh, there's, it explains how Odo's makeup is done, how Michael Bedorn's makeup is done. Uh, I actually have, I have Lol's head uh, all opened up on display. My son did all the electronics on the show uh, forever. He built all the Borg eyes. He built, uh, as I said, Lol's head. Anytime we opened data anywhere, uh, it was Michael's electronics inside oh, of it. Oh, cool. Geordie's uh, yeah. blinkies. I mean, yeah. It was... Uh, yeah, it was it was a family collaboration to to put all this together. Now you mentioned before how when you were putting Rene Aubergenois' makeup together, that was one where he really couldn't chatter in the chair because it was very delicate. Um, but there were some that uh, that it could be a little more social. I mean, I, I maybe uh, maybe Terry Farrell's makeup or oh Terry uh, and I we didn't stop talking the whole time. <laughs> And we're we're still great friends. And whenever she comes out here, uh, she's uh, she gives me a call and she comes over to the house and we we talk. Um, I did her makeup because I signed her neck every time I finished it, <laughs> three hundred and fifty times. And when I did her on stage in Vegas, it was three hundred and fifty one. Awesome, that's great. Now there were some people who couldn't really eat. In, was Renee one who really couldn't eat during the day because of the makeup? He could. But the idea was to open your mouth and put the spoon into your mouth. And it's the same way they ate on Planet of the Apes. Uh, you just have to be, and he was. He was very conscious of not doing anything mm. to, uh, to destroy the makeup because it did go right up to his lips. Wow. But, uh, but the Klingons, they could tear into a turkey leg and it wouldn't yeah, be. Yeah, they could. The only problem is that hopefully they wouldn't eat their mustache. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, uh, sir, we've had you for an hour. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. This has been a real treat for me and for the fans as well. Your book, Makeup Man, is now available for all to read. And we'll be seeing you at the conventions this summer. I would imagine yes. you'll be in, you're in Vegas regularly. You'll be there again this year. And yes. um, Star Trek fans want to check it out. Uh, you'll be, probably be signing copies of your book, no doubt, right? I think we're going to do that this year. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. That's great. Well, then, uh, by that point, uh, I'll be able to meet you, and I'll get you to sign my copy of the book. How does that sound? Very good. Awesome. Very good. All right. Thanks again for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. And if you need to carry on the conversation some more, we'll do more. Excellent. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.